Turn in your Bibles to Psalms chapter 39 tonight. I want to thank the Lord for letting me be in prayer meeting. And uh, I felt good coming in. I didn't feel bad, so I don't want you to misconstrue what I'm about to say. But I feel so much better since I've been here. I love hearing about God saving souls. And that encourages my heart. And I, I, You know, it just seems like sometimes God just starts to stir amongst his people. And you'll hear story after story of folks getting born again, getting saved. And I praise the Lord, rejoice in that. Appreciate the testimonies that we've heard. Man, it's just a precious thing. It's a precious thing to come prayer meeting. I don't know if you've got as much out of it as I have already, but I could say, let's go home and feel like we had church. I don't mean I'm going to, but I could do that. <clears throat> Turn in your Bibles. Psalms chapter number 39 tonight. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. Psalms chapter 39, verse number 1. We'll read down to the to the close of the chapter. Not very long, just 13 verses. We'll read down and uh, preach a little bit from the Word of God. Uh, the Word of God says, I said, I will take heed to my ways, that I sin not with my tongue. I will keep my mouth with a bridle while the wicked is before me. I was dumb with silence. I held my peace even from good, and my sorrow was stirred. My heart was hot within me while I was musing the fire burned. Then spake I with my tongue, Lord, make me to know mine end, the measure of my days, what it is, that I may know how frail I am. Behold, thou hast made my days as an handbreadth, and mine age is as nothing before thee. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity, say law. Surely every man walketh in a vain show. Surely they are disquieted in vain. He heapeth up riches, and knoweth not who shall gather them. And now, Lord, what wait I for? My hope is in thee. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. I was dumb. I opened not my mouth, because thou didst it. Remove thy stroke away from me. I am consumed by the blow of thine hand. When thou with rebukes dost correct man for iniquity, thou makest his beauty to consume away like a moth. Surely every man is vanity, say law. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear unto my cry. Hold not thy peace at my tears, for I am a stranger with thee and a sojourner as all my fathers were. O spare me that I may recover strength before I go hence and be no more. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be here. Thank you for the Wednesday night prayer meeting, Lord. What a blessing it is and has already been to gather in this place to hear testimonies of how you're working in folks' lives, how you've saved sinners, Lord, how you've uh, met needs, how that you've comforted hearts, how that you have opened doors, Lord, how that you've guided us and given us wisdom and discretion in the decisions that we have to make. Lord, there's just so much that we have to praise you for. And we are mindful that you've done these things in our life. We're grateful for how you've worked in our midst. But Lord, we've also come with heavy hearts, with needs in our lives. So we pray that you would meet those needs do it in such a way that we'd see your providential hand in it, that we might be extra mindful to give you the praise that you're due. Lord, and I pray for the preaching tonight, that your word would go forth and that your spirit would wield it, that it would use it in our lives, that this would not just be a, a moment of gathering, that it would not just be the, the carrying out of a duty or an obligation or routine or formality, but that this would be a moment when we hear from you, when you speak distinctly and powerfully to our hearts and minds, We'll be sure to thank you for what takes place. Lord, we love you, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. 
Psalms chapter number 39 is divided basically into three portions. And uh, they are demarcated by that phrase, selah, that word. That is a musical word, the word selah. And it means to stop, to pause, and to contemplate on what has been said. And this word the psalmist used over and over again, and they very often divide portions of a psalm in a very uh, neat and clear and concise way for our digestion. In other words, whenever they sang this song, it's almost like we would think of a, a first, a second, a third verse. When they sang these, they intended, though they are part of a whole, to also be a, a, a part unto themselves that you can read it and understand it to give structure to the psalm as we read it. And when we read the 39th Psalm, I don't know if you felt this way in reading it. I felt it as I studied through the Word of God. You know, verse number one, it's almost like it begins in the middle of a conversation. Uh, have you ever walked into a conversation and had no clue what was going on? Half the time, the conversations I start, I have no clue what's going on. Amen. But sometimes, I, I, you know, you walk in, you just catch half of a sentence or, or half of a phrase. And, and that it feels like that when you read the, the first verse. It just says, I said, I will take heed to my ways. And you're thinking, what ways? What ways are you talking about? He says that I sin not with my tongue. I will keep my mouth with a bridle. That's generally good advice. But he says, I will keep my mouth with a bridle while the wicked is before me. Who are these wicked people? Why are they before the psalmist? The, the sense that we have sort of intruded into the middle of a, of a stream of thought is not by accident in this psalm. We could rightly say as we study through it that we are, are, are sort of uh, intruding in, trespassing into the thoughts of a man that is in a crisis of mind in Psalms 39. He begins by describing a decision he made in response to the wicked that he sees around him. It's almost as though the psalmist has just been struggling with and thinking on the wickedness of the world in which he lives. I don't know if I'm going to be able to, to successfully get you and I in the same place as where the psalmist is, but I would rightly say, I think, tonight that most of us experience what this psalmist is experiencing. We look around at a world that is marred by sin, marked by depravity, that is burning around all around us. We look at a world where wickedness is, is lauded, where, where depravity is applauded. We look at a world where the, the more wicked and vile and gross that it is, the more that it is advanced and put on a pedestal and clapped for. And sometimes, if you're not careful, you will find the ugliness, the sinfulness, the wicked of the world will uh, sort of swell up your mind, push out all other thoughts, and become a consuming element in your day-to-day -day life. We live in the age of the 24-hour news cycle where there is just a constant drip and sometimes it is a flood of bad news everywhere we look. I'll tell you, you know, I understand that Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. The depravities that we see in society are not really new. They have always existed to some degree. But man, we're just so hooked up to everything that we see it all the time. The wickedness that this world contains, it always in degree was there, but it just feels like we are bombarded day in and day out by a wicked world. And if you're not careful, it will weary you in your mind and in your soul. I'll tell you what I think we're reading in the 39th Psalm. I think we're reading about a man that has got weary of living in this world. He is discouraged. He is defeated. 
And he is tired of waking up every day and seeing a world that hates God and hates his word and, and stands in defiance against the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I have days like that. I have days where I wake up and, and I look out at a wicked world out there and, and you just, you feel so hopeless. You feel so defeated. You, you feel as though all that there is is wickedness and unrighteousness all around you. And if you're not careful, that can consume your world and push out all of the things that God is doing in your life. I want to preach to you on this thought tonight, being weary of the world that we're living in. It's interesting, the testimonies that were given tonight, and certainly I think that there are some thoughts similar to that floating in the psalmist's mind here. He is so disgusted with the world that though he is not to the place of taking his own life, certainly it sounds like he would be satisfied if the Lord would just take him on home. Have you ever had days where you weren't ready to end it, but you sure enough wish the Lord would just take you on home? Times when you just wish you didn't have to fight it and deal with it any longer. I want you to notice these three portions of Scripture here, and I'll say a word about them, and we'll be done tonight. The very first portion of this psalm begins with the psalmist's spiritual problem. As we said, it begins midstream of his thought. He has decided, he has come to a come to a solution in dealing with the world around him. It is a reactionary statement in verse number one when he says, I said, I will take heed to my ways that I sin not with my tongue. Now, let me pause there and say, generally speaking, it's better to say nothing than to say something. Most of the time, you'll be safer in life if you say nothing as opposed to saying something. But we find that the psalmist, though there is some nobility in that notion, he has taken it to a degree that is not honoring to the Lord. He says this, I will keep my mouth with a bridle while the wicked is before me. Now, there's two ways we can interpret what the psalmist says here. He could be saying, I would be circumspect regarding my testimony. I'm going to be cautious that I don't say anything that dishonors the Lord. I want to make sure when wicked men are before me that I'm guarding my lips and guarding my words. But it's apparent from the next phrase that that's not what he means. He says this in verse 2, I was dumb with silence. I held my peace even from good. So there's two ways we could interpret that phrase. One, he could be saying, well, I want to be careful with my testimony. I don't want to say the wrong thing. Or we could interpret it in this way. The psalmist is saying, I'm tired of testifying to, witnessing to, trying to reach a world that hates God and hates me. I'm going to take my ball and go home. I'm tired of dealing with them. I'm tired of being hated and being despised for standing for that which is true. And I'm just done with the world. I'll be honest with you. I don't believe that the, the system of monasteries and vows of silence and things like that. There's no foundation in the Bible for that. There's a lot of wickedness in that notion of uh, aestheticism like that. But I'll tell you this, man, there's days that it's pretty tempting the idea to buy you about 40 acres somewhere in the middle of nowhere and, and just fence the whole world out. I want you to notice here in verse number one, we see his strategy of silence regarding the world. And I'm fearful that this is becoming mainstream for believers. We have been conditioned to believe that everybody gets to have something to say except for Christians. You will find this mentality in the public school system. You'll find it on the workplace. You'll find it in any number of public venues. And the notion is that if you are of any uh, religious people's group, of any sort of disposition ideologically, then you have a right to have your seat at the table. But if you're a Bible-believing Christian, you are expected just to hush, keep your mouth shut, sit down, and be quiet. 
And I find that in that environment, a great many Christians are yielding to that temptation. Because to be honest, most of us recognize that on in the public venue, when we do stand up for what is right, we rarely are thanked for it. Most of the time we're scorned for it. Most of the time we're despised for it. And the psalmist's solution here, his strategy here, is he says, I'm going to quit striving with the world and I'm just going to start being silent, keeping my peace, and waiting for whatever is about to happen. This strategy, while certainly it's understandable, you know the problem with it? We're not called to be silent. We're called to be salt. We're not called to not rock the boat. We're not called to maintain the status quo. It is one of the fundamental components of Bible Christianity that we change the environment that we're in, or at least make every biblical effort to do so. I understand the inclination, and I bet you do too, to want to say, forget all of it. The world just wants to burn down, let them burn down. I've got me in mind. I'm going to just protect my little group and whatever they want to do out there, that's their business. And that sort of isolationism is, is greatly tempting to you and I. But there is a danger within it. And he mentions it in verse number two. He says, I was dumb with silence. I held my peace. Then he says this, even from good. Can I ask you this? And we understand that this is the word of God, right? We understand these are the words of the Lord. But whose voice does God have if he doesn't have our voice? Uh, God could have accomplished the propagation of the gospel, the, the, uh, the uh, salting of the world, we could say it that way. Uh, through biblical truth and biblical ideals, through any number of ways. But he chose to do so through human instruments. He chose to do so through the local church. He chose to do so through born-again believers like you and like me. And for us to suggest that we have the right to check out from this world, to withdraw ourselves away, and to purpose that all we're going to do is build this little fort around us where the world never sees us and the world never interacts with us. We don't have the right to do that. When we got born again, we forfeited the right to do that. We see his strategy of silence. And notice what that led to. Look at the end of verse number two. He says, we'll read all of verse two. He says, I was done with silence. I held my peace even from good. Did that help him? Did it give him peace of mind? Most of the time when we want to withdraw from the world, it's because we believe that's going to provide us some semblance of peace of mind. But he says, and my sorrow was stirred. He says, my heart was hot within me. That's heartburn. Somebody say amen. My heart was hot within me while I was musing, he says, the fire burned. Then spake I with my tongue. Can I let you in on something? You ain't going to be any less grieved by the world if you're silent. You're not going to be any more encouraged by the world if you're withdrawn. The world's going to still be as wicked whether you're being a witness and a testimony or not. And you're going to be just as grieved by the wickedness of the world whether you speak up for righteousness or not. So you might as well go ahead and stand for Christ because that's the only thing that's going to give you peace of heart. We see his heaviness of heart here. It didn't help him. It didn't, it didn't soothe him. It wasn't a balm to his soul. It was a burden to his soul. And much like uh, Paul in the book of Acts when he was at Athens, his spirit was, was stirred within him when he saw the whole city given to idolatry. When the psalmist purposes that he's going to be quiet, now he's not only contending with a, a wicked world that grieves him, that vexes his righteous soul day by day with their ungodly doings, but he's also dealing with the conviction of the Holy Spirit. 
He's dealing with the guilt and shame that comes along with a Christian abdicating his responsibility. It didn't help. And I got news for you. There's only way to, one way as believers to deal with the wickedness of the world that we're living in. And that's through a biblical worldview and through the grace and ministration of the Holy Spirit. We can try to run from it. We can try to pretend it's not out there. We can try to cloister ourselves away and, and pretend as though it can't touch us and can't affect us. But that never has been the mandate of Bible Christianity. You won't find anywhere in the New Testament us being commanded to sequester ourselves away and hide from the world. We are commanded to not be of the world. But Christ himself said he had a desire that we be in the world. It's biblical that we reach out to this world. I don't know if you realize this, but Christ loves them just like he loves you. And who's going to reach them if it's not you? We see the heaviness of heart here. And then notice his defeated despair. Where does this lead him? Verse four, he says, Lord, make me to know mine end and the measure of my days, what it is that I may know how frail I am. Behold, thou hast made my days as an handbreadth. And mine age is as nothing before thee. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity, say law. You know, the problem is God has no desire for us to look inward. He always desires for us to look upward and onward. When we purpose to look inward, we don't find ourselves looking at Christ and looking at something that gives us hope. We find ourselves looking at our own frailty and infirmity. And that way lies madness. My friend, that way lies madness. He says, when I when I looked at myself, I prayed and I said, Lord, show me how long I've got. And I don't know about you, and maybe I'll get to heaven, he'll smack me in the mouth because I interpreted it wrong. But it sounds to me like this is a man with leaving on his mind. He's tired of dealing with this world. He just wants to know, Lord, how long till you're going to take me home? Now listen, I'm 30 years old, however many. I don't do that to be cute. I can't remember. And I don't know what that means. Somebody's going to have to do the math. 1987. Text me afterwards how old I am. All right. And uh, and I find days where you think, how much longer are we going to have to deal with this? How much longer are we going to have to see the wicked vaunt themselves against God? And there's a real danger, friend, that we yield ourselves to that despair. When we look inward upon ourselves, when we resolve that we're going to withdraw away from the calling of God, abdicate our responsibility. We're left alone in a room with the madness and insufficiency of our own selves. And that always leads to despair. We see his spiritual problem in verses 1 through 5. But then we find that word Selah in verse number 5. So we have the ending of a thought and, and, and we're instructed to stop to consider it, which we've done. But let's move on to the next one. What's the next portion? The first is his spiritual problem. But then we see his spiritual progress. Verse number 6. He says, Surely every man walketh in a vain show. Surely they are disquieted in vain. He heapeth up riches and knoweth not who shall gather them. Now this sounds a lot like the earlier portion. And if we're not careful, we'll think this is a rerun. Why, he's still just griping and complaining about the wickedness of the world. But then notice what he says in verse 7. And now, Lord, what wait I for? My hope is in thee. Now, we'll say a word about verse 7 here in a moment. But I just pointed out to note that there has been a change in his frame of mind here. He is no longer weighed down with despair. Something has shifted and changed. And we see in this spiritual progress that he's making a few different steps along the way. First, we see his diagnosis of the world in verse number six. He revisits the wickedness of the world. He looks at it again and he doesn't really change his opinion, but he certainly deepens his perspective 
on the world around him. And he makes three statements about the wickedness of the world. The first that he makes is that their teachings are false. He says, surely every man walketh in a vain show. Now, what does he mean when he says in a vain show? He's saying that hypocrisy is rampant in our world. I tell you, we're living in a world where hypocrisy is the norm. Uh, hypocrisy is so normal in our world that when someone just looks at us and tells us a truth, we don't know how to absorb it anymore. We're living in a world I was watching the other day where Justin Trudeau, the prime minister of Canada, and I'm not, listen, I don't, he don't deserve this kind of real estate in my head, so I'm going to say this and move on, all right? But the other day he got up and, and he was condemning Russia. Well, that's fine. I don't care if you condemn Russia. I got My name's not Boris. I don't care whether you like him or don't like him. But he was condemning Russia. And he said this. He said, we will stand against authoritarianism anywhere in the world. I mean, I had to rewind it and watch it a second time. I mean, how crazy is that? Now, this is after his Royal Canadian Mounted Police stormtroopers had trampled down an, an uh, well, I don't know what the politically correct name is for a, a, an Indian that lives in Canada, but an Indian Canadian grandmother that was there, that was on a rascal scooter protesting the vaccine mandate and had his, had his horsemen, his cavalry, trample this poor woman down. And then he wants to get up and say, we stand against authoritarianism and tyranny of and said it with a straight face. And that is accepted in much of the world today. I'll tell you this, politicians all the time, any anytime politicians want to spend your money and send your sons and daughters to die somewhere, they'll tell you it's democracy. But if they cared about democracy, they'd care about us having it here before they'd care about us having it anywhere else in the world. And I'm just telling you, we live in an environment today where hypocrisy is so rampant that sometimes we don't even know how to process when someone is genuine. The psalmist, he steps back and he says, you know what I've seen? I've seen that I should not be disturbed or disquieted by the wickedness of the world because of course the world is wicked. It is full of nothing but lies, deception, and hypocrisy. They have no capacity to move beyond that because the only thing that can transform a man and make him care about truth above advancement is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He makes this statement, their teachings are false. Then he points to the fact that their turmoil is foolish. He says, surely they are disquieted in vain. He says, I'm watching the uh, world rocking and reeling and seething and boiling and, and they're taking up banners and, and they're fighting for ideals and all of these things. But at the end of the day, all those things they're fighting for are going to pass away. They're all in vain. I'll tell you what it is. It, it is nothing but the distraction of an addled mind in the world around us. It's the attempt to try to distract from the emptiness in the soul and the spirit of an unregenerate man. And that's why all of these paltry, petty things that couldn't matter less become the rallying cries of the world that we live in. Their turmoil is foolish. Then he points to the fact that their treasures are fleeting. He says, he heapeth up riches and knoweth not who shall gather them. The greatest thing they can do is, is pile up riches that they're then going to die and leave to someone else. You almost hear the pity in the psalmist's words in verse number six. Can I tell you, listen, we're never going to love. And when I say love the world, I mean love lost people that are in the bondage and throes of a world system. I don't mean love worldliness. But we're never going to love the lost and dying in this world until we first learn to pity them. 
This is part of the great deception of the day in which we're living in, in which all of society has been busted into various little interest groups and then pitted against each other, is that we constantly look out and see a field of foes before us instead of seeing a lost and dying world. I'm not saying the distinctions don't matter. I'm not saying that they don't hold and adhere to ideals that may be abjectly opposite of the Word of God. But I'm saying at the end of the day, you know why they do that? Because they're a lost sinner just like you were before you got born again. But if the devil can make you not see a sinner, but instead see an opponent, then he has severed your heart from the compassionate needs to be able to reach him with the gospel. The psalmist is learning to pity the world and recognizing the hopelessness of them. But then notice what he says in verse seven. We see his diagnosis of the world. That was one step of progress. He's learning to pity them. But then notice his dependence on the Lord. I like this. He says, and now, Lord, what wait I for? My hope is in thee. It's almost like he said, I see how empty and hopeless the world is. What am I waiting for? My hope is not in them. My hope is in you, Lord. And you're the one I'm looking to. We see the false hope that he abandons. Uh, listen, I and, and I'll just, piece of advice. Take it for what it's worth or leave it at the door. It's your choice. But the sooner you recognize that this world is never going to deliver you, it's not going to help you, it's not going to uplift you, it's not going to rescue you, the sooner you'll have peace of mind. I don't know what politician's coming down the road next, but I know they ain't going to fix things. I don't care. I don't care what letter they got by their name. I don't care how many letters they got by their name. None of that matters to me. I'm just telling you, you say, preacher, you know, there, there's left wing, there's right wings, and they're broken, broken wings on the same bird going downhill. They can't save you. They can't help you. The sooner you recognize that, listen, you can chase after the world's riches, you can chase after the world's relationships. The sooner you recognize that those things don't give peace of mind, the sooner you'll quit waiting around for the world to start being better than what it naturally is, and you'll start looking to the one who's perfect as he already is. Uh, the more that believers hope for some kind of great, grand, glorious social justice revolution of righteousness through our society, and start recognizing that sinners are broken and lost and depraved, and without the gospel, they're going to stay broken and lost and depraved, the sooner that we'll have peace of mind. We see the false hope that he abandons. Then we see the faithful hope that he acknowledged. He says, my hope is in thee. And can I tell you, there's no better place to have hope than in the Lord. He's perfectly, immaculately faithful in every way, shape, fashion, and form. He's never been unfaithful. And so who better could we put our hope in? The psalmist says, what I recognize is I was sitting around waiting for the world to wake up one day and be better. And the sooner I realize they're never going to be better, but the Lord is good as he is, and I'm going to start looking to him, the psalmist says, then I started to get peace of mind. We see his dependence on the Lord. Then we see his desire in life. Verse number eight. He says, Lord, this is what I want. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. In other words, he says, I'm going to quit trying to sit around and wring my hands and clutch pearls and, and hope the world will get better. And I'm instead going to focus on what God can do in my life to make my life what would please him. There's two things that he asks for. The first is he prays for a pure life before the Lord. Deliver me from all my transgressions. I, I don't mean this in an ugly way, but let me tell you something. If you spent the rest of your life trying to fix your problems, you would never have time to try to fix the world's problems yourself. 
There is enough in our own lives to work on, to focus on, without worrying about what somebody said somewhere, sometime, and somebody did this, and all a bunch of nonsense that social media has got us addicted to. There is enough in your life and in my life to get our focus on, to ask the Lord to work in our lives. That's the most immediate, present, accessible place of change in your life. You say, preacher, I want to see something change in this world. All right, start with you. Start with you. We, we see he wants a pure life before the Lord. And then he wants a proper testimony before the world. He says, make me not the reproach of the foolish. Uh, listen, uh, people, we, sinners are going to reproach. They're going to hate. They're going to despise uh, Christians. But we shouldn't make it easy for them. <laughs> Sometimes I watch these prosperity preacher clowns on TV. And I think, man, you're making it so easy for the world to laugh at us. You know, they get up with all their nonsense. And uh, we in our life ought to determine that if the world's going to criticize, it's going to have to lie about us to do it. it, it they're, they're going to have to tell something on us that ain't like Daniel of old. They're going to have to lie about us to say something towards us. He says, here's what I desire before the world. I want them to see in me what it means to be a Bible believer. We see his desire in life. And then notice his discernment. In chastening. This is interesting, verse number nine. He makes a, a remarkable confession here. He says, I was dumb, I opened not my mouth, because thou didst. Now what's he talking about when he says that? Is this a new instance of silence? No, I don't think so. I think he's pointing back to verse number one. When he said, I will take heed to my ways that I sin not with my tongue. I will keep my mouth with a bridle while the wicked is before me. I was dumb with silence. But now he looks back and he says, then I thought I was doing it. He says, now I realize, God, it was you doing it. I want to make a very simple point here. He absolutely made the decision to keep silence. But he's recognizing that in that erroneous decision that he made, in that bad decision that he made, that God was trying to grow him, develop him, and he was in some ways chastening him through that process. Listen, we, we have a bad habit of sitting around griping about what the world's doing to us instead of acknowledging what the Lord's doing through us and for us. There's nothing happened in your life that took God by surprise. And the sooner you recognize that, listen, hey, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. Ain't, ain't, ain't nobody in this room that's born again a victim. You understand me? We are all conquerors through him that loved us. And the sooner that we get rid of that victimhood mentality of, oh, woe is me, the world's so rough on me, oh, it's so hard on me, and the sooner we get our eyes on what the Lord's done in our life and what He's doing through our life, the sooner we'll gain victory in the things that we're facing. We see His discernment in chasing. But then notice His deference to the Lord. Verse number 10. He says, Remove thy stroke away from me. I am consumed by the blow of thine hand. When thou with rebukes dost correct man for iniquity, thou makest his beauty to consume away like a moth. Surely every man is vanity, say law. Now that's a little bit of a mysterious passage, if we're to be frank. But it's to be understood in the context of verse number 9. In verse number 9, he's saying, you know, I thought I was just uh, pitching a fit and sulking. I thought I was just... But now I realize that God was yielding me up to my own weaknesses, permitting me a place, a space of discouragement to try to show me and grow me in the truth that I'm not sufficient for the task at hand. And he says, now that I recognize that, Lord... I'm asking you, lesson learned, I'm asking you to take away this chastening from my life because I want to press forward in serving you. We see in this, number one, his submission. He waves the white flag and he says, Lord, if you're trying to teach me something, I'm ready to learn it. One of the great first steps in our life to seeing those pivotal watershed moments 
when God's working in our life is just the simple act of submission of saying, Lord, whatever it is that you're trying to teach me, I'm ready and willing to learn it. He says, Lord, take this stroke away from me. And he's talking about a, a, a hit upon him, a heaviness. He says, I'm consumed by the blow of thine hand. But then we see his humility. He says, when thou with rebukes dost correct man for iniquity, thou makest his beauty to consume away like a moth. Surely every man is vanity, say law. What's he saying? He's saying, I recognize that I better get my attitude right because if I keep it in a wrong condition, it's going to burn up and consume away my life. There is a bad habit I think we all have a tendency to do, particularly those of us that we've raised children. And we understand that sometimes when you're raising children, uh, children, they, they, they're, they're mean. <laughs> they get in a bad mood. Sometimes, they, here's how we'd say it, they have a hard time. Did your kid ever have a hard time, have one of those days where the nap got cut short and, and, and you ran out of Cheerios and they smashed their finger and somebody looked at them wrong and they weren't even, I mean, there's like in Gremlins, that little movie when you got water on them. They're just, just, just insufferable. Some of y'all know. And sometimes we think to ourselves, well, it's harmless. They're just having a hard time. You know, give them a nap. You know, give them, give them chocolate chip cookie, whatever it is. Let, let them get over it. They'll feel better. And we view that process of pitching a fit, that process of, 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 of demoralization in their heart and mind of discouragement, we view that as being something that has no lasting effects. And sometimes then as adults, we think we can go through that same process spiritually, that we can have seasons and moments in our life where we yield to discouragement, where we yield to defeat, where we pitch a fit on God, where we decide we're going to take our ball and go home, and we know that God in His grace and mercy will forgive us. And let me say, God in His grace and mercy will forgive us. But understand that every time we do that, we lose something in our state of mind and in our spiritual walk. It has a lasting effect upon us. The longer you stay in sin, the longer that you lie and wallow in defeat, the harder it's going to be to get up and go on with God and serve Him another day. I'm not saying God won't forgive you. I'm not saying He won't pardon. I'm not saying that He won't strengthen. But I'm saying this, we are finite creatures. And just as the psalmist says, thou makest his beauty to consume away like a moth, he said, I recognize I better get my attitude straight because it's hurting me staying in this condition. There's a final part, and I just want to notice it and we'll be done tonight. Notice in verse number 12, we see his spiritual prayer. So we've seen his spiritual problem, his spiritual progress, but then this, this passage closes with a prayer. It's a spiritual prayer. He says this, hear my prayer, O Lord. And give ear unto my cry, hold not thy peace at my tears. For I am a stranger with thee, and a sojourner as all my fathers were. Oh, spare me that I may recover strength before I go hence and be no more. He sums it up by asking God for some things. Notice first off the request of his prayer. His desire is not that the Lord change the condition of the world, though of course I'm sure he did desire that, but rather that God give him the realization that the prayers that he's praying are being heard and acknowledged and responded to by the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear unto my cry, hold not thy peace at my tears. The first thing he prays for is strength in his prayer. Let me say that when our prayer life flags, when we allow it to falter, and, and I'm guilty of that, I bet you're guilty of it too, but when we do that, we are walking a precarious tightrope. For it's the very source of strength in our life. If we're not willing to go to the Lord and pray, where, where are we going to get strength from? 
We see the request of his prayer. But then notice the realization of his prayer. I like this. He said this, For I am a stranger with thee, and a sojourner as all my fathers were. Now, I like to do this. There's two ways you could interpret that, right? But let's find out what the Bible's saying here. What's the right way? When he says, I am a stranger with thee, there's two ways we could understand that. He could be saying, I am a stranger to God. But I don't think that's what he's saying. I think if he was, he wouldn't be praying to the Lord. I think if he was, he wouldn't be having this conversation with the Lord. I don't think he's saying, I am a stranger to God. I think he's saying exactly what your King James Bible says, that he is a stranger with God. Can I encourage you in this fact tonight? Listen, if we feel a little out of place in this world, take comfort in the fact if we're a stranger in this world, at least we're a stranger with God who is also a stranger in this world. He recognizes that he, he may feel alone, but he's not alone. That the same things that he's experienced. Listen, no one's more grieved by the wickedness of this world than God who created it. Than God who sent his son to die for it. Than God who's coming back to it. He is grieved far and away more than we are. And then he says this, and a sojourner. Now, a sojourner is someone that's passing through. We could define it in a bunch of fancy ways, but that's what it means. A sojourner is someone that is passing through. They're just there for a little while. He says, I am a stranger with thee and a sojourner as all my fathers were. You know what the realization is of his prayer? What he's feeling is not abnormal. It is spiritually normal. To be grieved by the world we live in is not a flaw. It's not a bug in the system. It's a feature of Bible Christianity. It's not something that we ought to begrudge. It's something we ought to bless. Let me just say in passing here, man, I don't want to get used to this world. I don't want to be content in it. I, I don't want, I've seen what the world has to offer. I don't want to feel like that's normal. One of the scariest things about the world we live in today is the things that are called normal. Things that have no business being in the same dictionary as the word normal are considered normal. If that's what normal is, I don't want to be normal. We see the realization of his prayer. But then I like this, man. We see the resolve of his prayer. Verse 13, he says, oh, spare me. That's interesting. Before he was saying, Lord, how much longer I got till I'm done here? Lord, what's what's the length of my days? Lord, when are you going to take me out here? Now he's saying, oh, spare me. Lord, leave me here that I may recover strength before I go hence and be no more. Now, before we have a man that is has a deep sense of the frustrations of life, but here we have a man that has a deep sense of the finality of life. And he's saying, Lord, I want you to spare me. I want you to give me strength that I can go on and serve you and live for you before I leave this world and am no more. Now, this is not an, uh, an endorsement of the idea of, of, of annihilation, the idea that we don't exist afterwards. Uh, the whole rest of the Bible would have to be wrong to try to make that verse say that. That's, of course, not what he's saying. But he's saying as regards this world system, I have this little pocket of time, this this season that I am here. And then when I leave, I can't reach back and touch this world. I can't change the things in it. And so instead of sitting around, griping, moaning, complaining, Lord, when are you going to take me out of here? I'm so tired of it. He says, Lord, I want to make the most out of my time here. Because I know I don't have very long. you grieved by the wickedness of the world. I bet you are. I am. Surely, the, Surely if you know the Lord and love Him and love His Word... And love righteousness, uh, surely you're grieved by the world. But we can respond to that in one of two ways. 
That can either drive us into a dark hole that makes us scorn opportunities, abdicate our responsibilities, that makes us abandon our, our duty to the Lord, or we can let it drive us to the Lord in hope and give us a broken heart that pities a broken world and seek for God to make the most out of our time here before we step into eternity. Let's bow our heads tonight as a musician comes to play. We give you an opportunity to respond to the Lord tonight. I trust that he spoke to your heart about some things. I trust there was some stuff in in your life that the Holy Ghost put a finger upon and dealt with. And I want you to have the opportunity to meet him in this altar and deal with that tonight. I'll tell you, as believers, every one of us ought to purpose in our hearts to make this life, this time, count for Christ. To not let it pass by, to not to not let it go by wishing it away, begrudging, despair, discouragement at how wicked the world is, but instead letting our hearts break for lost sinners and seeking for God to use our life for His glory. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.